I, I guess my greatest interest, uh, you know, that not a single one of the Republican or Democratic candidates, as far as I know, has spoken to or been asked to speak to, uh, is level of military spending. Uh, and you've said you would cut at least 50%. Um, I wonder if you have any any details on, on what you would cut and what you would not cut and, and how you would go about starting that. Sure. And, and first let me say that that is um, enabled. Cutting the military budget is something that, you know, we can do right now, but we want to be clear that uh, we're putting an end to wars for oil, period. And that is uh, part of our core policy of a Green New Deal, which creates uh, an emergency program uh, establishing 20 million living wage jobs, full-time jobs, to green the economy, our energy, food, and transportation systems, uh, building critical infrastructure, restoring ecosystems, etc. This is an emergency program that will get to 100% renewable energy by 2030. So this is a wartime mobilization, a wartime level mobilization, uh, in order to completely uh, detoxify our energy system, and that means both nuclear and fossil fuel. Um, in doing that, we uh, deprive the uh, empire of its major um, uh, justification for wars and bases all around the world. So we want to be clear that that impetus is gone and goading the American public into war uh, so as to um, feed our fossil fuel energy system, uh, that ends and makes all the more uh, essential and possible the m- major cutting of the military budget. So, um, so it sounds like one to, thing you might cut would be, would be foreign bases. Uh, absolutely. That's right. Uh, foreign bases, and, and I would add to that, uh, a nuclear uh, a nuclear program that called for a trillion dollars over the next couple decades of new military uh, gadgets uh, and gadgets to deliver uh, nuclear weapons, submarines, um, missiles, uh, and aircraft. So that's a lot of money. Would you get rid of the nuclear weapons unilaterally, as Jeremy Corbyn talks about in the U.K.? Well, let me say that we don't even need to do it unilaterally because because the Russians have been begging to uh, revive the process of nuclear disarmament, which uh, the U.S. in its wisdom, uh, you know, basically uh, undercut that program of uh, nuclear, uh, you know, negotiations to reduce our arsenals, and the Russians have been, um, you know persistently trying to restore uh, those nuclear talks for the purpose of, uh, of disarmament. And that would be step one, is to make major reductions uh, between the U.S. and Russia, and then to convene a world forum to put an end to nuclear weapons altogether. How, how popular are these ideas uh, in the U.S. public in, in terms of any polls that you know of, uh, and how would you get it through Congress and okay. the corporate media and all the shouting and screaming about people losing jobs and the nation being endangered and so forth? Okay, so a few things there. First of all, before the current hysteria 
uh, which has been, um, you know, one-dimensional hysteria uh, that allowed only the discussion of, you know, this so-called terrible ISIS threat. Um, before this last propaganda initiative, um, polls showed that the American public wanted to cut the military budget and has long wanted to cut the military budget and really just has to be subjected to fear campaigns periodically in order to uh, entertain tolerance for it. And if the word actually got out you know, that clarifies what an utter disaster this war on terror has been, and then in fact it has only created more terror, which we instigated, by the way, uh, at the outset, uh, together with the Saudis, creating, uh, or shall we say, training and arming the Mujahideen, um, let me say specifically funding and arming the Mujahideen, uh, and creating an international uh, jihad movement in Afghanistan. Uh, this has been a disaster, whether you look back to its origins or you just look back to the last 14 years. And Americans deserve to know that this has cost every household $75,000. That's not going to make people terribly enthusiastic for it, um, particularly you know, when you point out that all it has done is create failed states, worse terrorist threats, whether you look at the Taliban, the globalization of al-Qaeda, the creation of ISIS. This has been an utter, unmitigated disaster. Uh, and the massive refugee crisis, which is uh, threatening to tear apart uh, the European Union. Uh, this is absolutely unsustainable uh, on by any count. And in my experience, uh, all you have to do is have a real conversation, have an open mic, uh, a true uh, presidential debate that actually allows presidential candidates to debate who have broad enough support that they are on the ballot for a majority of Americans and could numerically uh, win the election. Um, it's very when we are challenging the Commission on Presidential Debates in court. And we will be challenging them soon with a direct action campaign, so stay tuned, because the American public deserves to know about the issues. The American public deserves the right to vote, and they have a right to know who they can vote for and what they are voting about. Um, let me also mention, you know, in terms of how you do this, um, it's very important that we get the, uh, the, the war profiteers out of the business of dictating uh, our foreign policy, because there's very little rhyme or reason to it, <laughs> except that it's, uh, you know, it benefits the, uh, the war profiteers and the warmongers. So, you know, that, the, those two spheres of war profits and foreign policy, they, the, the umbilical cord has to be cut here, the umbilical cord that was so clearly established, you know, that, that Eisenhower warned about and coming out of the Second World War. That the birth of the massive weapons industry uh, has to be terminated. You know, we've got to cut that umbilical cord here. And one way to do that, for example, is by establishing pay-to-play protections. Pay-to-play protections basically mean you can't buy your way into policy. And these are protections that should actually be implemented uh, across all spheres of policy. But it's especially critical here because this is literally killing us and starving us. Uh, and it's only, you know, putting us more at risk for... Um, uh, you know, for uh, global security and American security, for that matter. And uh, if you establish that anyone who contributes, uh, who provides campaign contributions or who lobbies is not uh, subject 
is, is not eligible for contracting with the government. The minute you break that umbilical cord, then the industry loses its power to, um, you know, to corral Congress and dictate foreign policy. So that's just very important uh, as a backdrop. The, uh, the arms dealers, Jill, do an enormous amount of business, the, the biggest uh, national business on the globe, uh, selling to foreign countries. And they get That's favors right. from the State Department in terms of waivers of restrictions mm-hmm. on selling to particularly nasty governments and so forth. Uh, so those aren't contracts with the, the U.S. government. Those are sales to foreign nations that are then denounced as violent places that the U.S. military must go in and add more violence to. Um, uh, what about uh, ending the U.S. role as arms dealer to the world, and what about jobs for all the people who would be thrown out of work if we right. did that? Great. Okay, really important question. So, you know, I, I think that the, the, the contractors, uh, yeah, yeah, so, I mean, you would have to, you would have to modify that pay-to-play prohibition, and you'd have to work out a... Um, you know, a prohibition against allowing those uh, those waivers, et cetera, um, and to develop a prohibition against contracting uh, internationally as well. So, you know, there's not one silver bullet here. You need it on many levels. And, yes, I absolutely agree. Uh, war profiteering should not be allowed, you know, in the same way that um, energy profiteering is not compatible with our survival, and we as a society cannot survive into the future if energy policy is decided by private companies who own energy. You know, that we need to democratize our energy system so that our energy policies are actually serving the public good. Um, And that may mean, you know, democratizing uh, and uh, providing public ownership of our energy policies. And there may be, you know, something analogous to that required uh, to take the profiteering out of the weapons industry. It should, you know, killing and maiming millions of people around the world uh, should not be an industry from which people are allowed to profit. Yeah. Period. And in terms of the jobs, the jobs is not a hard one because uh, the companion to uh, this new uh, foreign policy based on international law, human rights, and diplomacy, that's what we're calling for, um, the companion to that is the Green New Deal which provides the right to a living wage job. So, um, in fact, far more jobs are created in clean renewable energy um, and uh, conservation than are, you know, per dollar spent in the weapons industry, as, you know, there are far more jobs available for teachers, et cetera. So once you, and and let me just add that when you you, uh, transform our energy supply so that it is based on, you know, clean renewable energy, uh, we get healthier, and and this is like miraculously healthier. This is established both by uh, engineering and environmental health studies that are sort of hypothetical using numbers uh, and modeling and so on, but it's also a real-world fact, uh, and you can look at the experience of Cuba when their oil pipeline went down with the breakup of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. Cuba experienced basically a health miracle uh, simply by ending the pollution uh, that we breathe in every day and by creating a healthy food system, which is part of our Green New Deal as well. 
um, uh, death rates from diabetes, for example, went down 50%, and death rates from heart attacks and strokes went down 25 to 35%. And this was within a matter of a couple of years, you could see this trend. So uh, we get healthier, too, which offloads our sick care system expenses. We spend a trillion dollars plus on the military-industrial complex every year, but we spend three trillion and counting every year on the sick care system, which doesn't make us well. It just enables us to tread water while we cope with these um, disastrous health impacts of, of the war economy and the fossil fuel economy. So we have lots of ways to generate the needed funds here to ensure that we are creating the jobs we must have if we are to transition our energy system, uh, our food system, and make wars for oil obsolete. So this is a win-win-win scenario. It's a win for the climate, it's a win for the jobs, and it's a win for uh, international peace and security. You've touched, Jill, on what I think is maybe the biggest weakness for Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, which seems to be very much self-inflicted, as far as I can tell. And uh, I'm interested in whether you uh, agree in that I I think uh, he has some wonderful domestic policies. And Mm -hmm. you can tell me if you agree with that. But uh, he won't say, take the money out of the military. He won't say, here are other sources of money. He, He he says that he needs to raise taxes. Uh, and even though he has explanations about how ultimately you'll be better off and you'll have more savings and you won't pay for private health insurance, so your taxes will go up, but you'll be better off. People are not hearing that. They're hearing he'll raise taxes, he'll raise taxes. And I look at your your uh, People's State of the Union where you said that your Green New Deal uh, will fund itself through massive health care savings, ending pollution, improving food quality with military savings from making wars for oil obsolete and with savings from reductions in the cost of energy and added funding could also come from a carbon tax. Um, these are these are all sources of funding uh, that he could talk about, that he could come out in favor of, that are incredibly popular, uh, and he would never have to say that his, uh, his proposals for college and health care and so forth are dependent on raising taxes uh, and, and that, that that noose around his neck of he's going to raise our taxes uh, wouldn't exist. So it seems like a self-inflicted wound. Uh, I, I don't know if you agree with that. Uh, no, I definitely do agree. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's problematic. It's hard to have a um, sustainable uh, policy of economic justice domestically if you do not have a international policy of true uh, peace and security. Or let me put that another way. We cannot create uh, a world that works for us here in America if we are busy, you know, bombing the hell out of the rest of the world. Um, and we've seen what a, what a vicious cycle of growing disaster this foreign policy is causing. It's very important, I think, to uh, clarify what its consequences are. That is, you know, uh, $6 trillion worth of cost, a million people dead in Iraq alone, and uh, tens of thousands of U.S. soldiers maimed and killed. And what it produced has been absolute disaster, failed states, you know, mass migrations, and worse terrorist threats. It's very important to recognize that for what it is. It means really standing up to the real deep state. You know, it means a real revolution, uh, a revolution uh, not only in our economy, but uh, in our foreign policy. 
uh, and a revolution that really establishes our democracy, which is essential in order to, you know, defy the deep state on, on its, uh, its warmongering. So, you know, uh, Bernie's support, for example, for the F-35 weapons system, which has been an incredible boondoggle in a weapon system which is basically uh, outdated and um, certainly not useful for fighting al-Qaeda or fighting, fighting ISIS. You know, this is, um, this is a very complex, high-tech piece of technology that would have been uh, appropriate uh, for the Cold War, but not for so-called fighting terrorism. The whole concept of fighting terrorism is an oxymoron. Um, you know, in order to fight terrorism, you have to fight the, uh, the underlying issues here, which are that of occupation, military occupation. A recent study, in fact, um, showed that 95% of all suicide bombers were basically motivated uh, and were fighting a military occupation. Uh, terrorism is a response to drones that that uh, sneak up on you in the night and to uh, night raids. And, you know, this is where we recruit and we enable uh, ISIS and al-Qaeda to continue expanding by the horrors of our war on terror, where we essentially are funding and training warlords, terrorists, uh, and just plain old uh, freedom fighters who are fighting against occupation. And this is a kind of something I think Bernie hasn't quite gotten straight by saying the solution here is to turn the Saudis loose. The Saudis need to get their hands dirty, thing. But yeah. in fact, you know, only three days ago, the New York Times had another article, and they've had several, as well as many other investigative uh, reporters, have shown how... In fact, the Saudis are basically the, the prototype, the original paradigm of, uh, of, of Wahhabism, which is essentially religious extremism uh, gone wild, and that the Saudis have put money into funding terrorism, let alone 9-11, for example, and into uh, the, the, the weapons bigot that runs the terrorist groups that they want to call good guys today, uh, who are in turn, you know, uh, partners with with ISIS, with Al Qaeda, with the guys that we're saying are the bad guys. You know, this isn't a good guys, bad guys scenario. It's not that simple. You cannot simply choose, you know, um, who's on your side today that won't be against you tomorrow. And our partnership with the Saudis is really at at the crux of this. We need to actually start holding the Saudis accountable. We cannot and should not be selling weapons to the Saudis. This is the spigot that then, you know, allows weapons to be distributed throughout the Middle East to anybody and everybody. We've got to stop selling uh, weapons not only to the Saudis, we need to impose an arms embargo on the police uh, to all sides and start diffusing this conflict. Um, but we can actually begin to rein in the Saudis with a weapons embargo and by impounding their bank account. Um, they're violating international law here massively. They are committing massive war crimes, not only in uh, in Yemen, but you know where they're using our weapons, uh, you know, and we're part of that same coalition committing war crimes in Yemen. But you know the Saudis have been funding and arming terrorist causes uh, going back to the Mujahideen. So it's really important that we rein in the um, the major source of terrorist movements around the world. Uh, time to start treating them very seriously as the pariah that they are. Um, 
and insist that they begin to comply with international law and human rights before we fund them and support them anymore. So, so that would be a radically different relationship with Saudi Arabia. What, what about uh, with Israel? Same goes. You know, uh, the, the, the foreign policy here is very simple. U.S. foreign policy needs to be based on international law and human rights and diplomacy, and we should not be in the business of selling weapons or, or providing support to governments that are flagrantly in violence of international law and human rights and that are committing war crimes. And there's no way you can, you know, look at what uh, Israel is doing, both in terms of its outrageous wars uh, on Palestine and the war and the recent war in Gaza and the wars before that, but also the ongoing occupation, which is a violation of international law and is at the heart of, you know, of the Palestinian, you know, uprising to start with. Should the U.S. So join the... So should the I'm should sorry? the U.S. be party to the International Criminal Court? Oh my God! Of course. <laughs> and the Treaty yeah. on Landmines? Of course. My God! Yeah. And how and, about we stop obstructing? You know, there are there are all sorts of treaties that are ready to move forward. Where in fact the Soviets and the Chinese have been, you know, uh, prime movers in expansion of treaties to you know uh, prohibit uh, weapons in space to, um, you know, uh, and, and to, uh, to uh, establish the rule of law in cyberspace and, you know, to preclude, uh, to preclude um, spying and terrorism through uh, cyber war as well. Uh, and the U.S. specifically has been uh, obstructing progress on uh, nuclear disarmament. Instead, we're charging ahead with a trillion dollars worth of new nuclear weapons. We have surrounded Russia with missiles and, and nuclear weapons that are, you know, that are distributed throughout, uh, throughout Europe. You know, and we're about to embark on this pivot uh, to uh, Asia, which is absolutely disastrous. You know, for starters, in terms of your question about bases, the very beginning here should be no new bases, period. No new bases. Um, and then we begin to draw down on the other ones, especially where uh, there are major mass movements to get rid of them because they are largely a blight on the communities where they exist in terms of, you know, human rights abuses, the abuse of women and rape and, and you know, sort of very seedy and violent uh, economic cultures that grow up around them. These are dangerous and harmful places. We should not be in the business of selling them uh, to other countries either, where we have talked, um, you know, where we have talked sympathetic uh, local oligarchies into, you know, using our uh, weapons uh, and our military as if we are the mercenaries uh, around the world. This is absolutely a disaster for the U.S. and for global peace and security. Uh, of course, there is a, a major disaster underway in Syria and Iraq now. Uh, what would you do about getting a ceasefire? How would you pursue diplomacy? Uh, do you have anyone in mind for Secretary of State who might do a different job than John Kerry? What, uh, uh, how, how do you answer the, the what, what do you want to do about ISIS question? <laughs> what we want to do about ISIS is stop ISIS in its tracks. Okay? How do we do that? Number one, we don't stop ISIS by doing more of what created ISIS. This is like the elephant in the room that 
uh, none of the other presidential candidates are willing to acknowledge. Uh, even Rand Paul, I must say, um, surprisingly. Um, so uh, we don't bomb ISIS and try to shoot ISIS out. We've got to stop ISIS in its tracks by ending the funding of ISIS and by ending the arming of ISIS. How do we do that? We do that with a weapons embargo. And so the U.S. can unilaterally um, move forward on that, but you know we need to sit down and talk with, with the Russians as well. Um, and, you know, Putin tried to do this. You know, Putin, our arch enemy, Putin, was actually trying to uh, create a peace process in Syria. And, you know, very late in the game, uh, went in with his, uh, with his war planes and bombs and, uh, and, and so on. Um, but we need to begin talking uh, with Russia uh, and with other countries. We need to build on our relative uh, detente with Iran to engage them, and we need to bring our allies to the process. Right now, the peace process, as I understand it, is held up by, guess who? Saudi Arabia who wants to bring in two uh, known terrorist groups as the representatives of the opposition. Um, you know, that, that's just, uh, um, that's crazy. You know, the, the Saudis should not be defining the way forward here. The way forward needs to be, um, you know, an inclusive peace process where the Saudis are not allowed to obstruct. Um, and we need to use the heft of our control over weapons and funding to stop it. Um, it's not rocket science how to stop ISIS and its tracks. ISIS and the other allied terrorist groups. Funding weapons, uh, the sale of ISIS's oil, and our ally Turkey needs to understand that their membership in NATO or their, you know, their, uh, their, uh, you know, their position with the U.S. and uh, other uh, allies around the world should not be taken for granted, and that they cannot be in the business either of funding ISIS and related groups through the purchase of their oil, and they should not be involved in shipping weapons. They also need to close down their border to the movement of the militias. So within our own circle of allies, we have the power uh, to do what it takes on militias, on oil sales, illegal oil sales, uh, and on weapons and funding. Yeah. That is how you stop ISIS. You don't stop ISIS by creating the next iteration and dropping the bombs. Even with, um, uh, even with drones, you know, our supposedly surgically precise tool of war, we know that 90% of the time they're getting the wrong target. So, you know, that speaks volumes about how war and militarism are great at, um, you know, uh, pouring gasoline on the fires. That we need to stop inflaming these fires, and we need to start doing the right thing. We need to start putting our dollars into true international security, education, providing health care, um, you know, and uh, through local community-based economic development, our current version of economic development, you know, is to send in the Clinton Foundation, you know, with their um, multinational corporations that will provide 
you know, uh, <laughs> uh, poverty jobs and exploit the environment and, and the people and hijack their democracy. You know, that's, that's not what we need to do. Okay, last... We need, we, need, we need a real foreign policy of human rights, democracy, uh, this, uh, and justice. This is my last question, Jill, and then anything else you you, you want to say. Um, I, uh, I I hear this kind of talk uh, from Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, uh, but in U.S. politics, including presidential politics, including the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, I, I don't hear this conversation or these sorts of proposals. Um, I, I hear them from many people in the United States who are not running for president or who have given up on the electoral system or have uh, limited hopes for what can be achieved through it. Um, what strategy do you have uh, for actually winning, for actually becoming president of the United States? Okay, so first about Jeremy Corbyn. I have already met with Jeremy Corbyn, actually, when I was in Paris for the um, climate talk. Yeah. Um, he was there, too, and the um, um, Caroline Lucas, who is the parliamentarian, the Green parliamentarian, and a good friend of uh, Jeremy Corbyn. Um, arranged for us to meet, and uh, we did meet, and we had a surprising amount of time to talk, and we agreed completely on collaborating on this peace offensive, um, which is the name we have given to our solution to the problem of ISIS. Peace is not passive. We need an active uh, interventionist program based on peace, which means to stop the flow of arms and money, etc. So we've already agreed that we see eye to eye on foreign policy. And it's not only Corbyn. Uh, at the uh, climate talks, you know, uh, peace and security and terrorism were very much in the air because of what was going on in Paris. So it was actually a wonderful opportunity at the People's Climate Summit to be networking with the, uh, with the peace movement around the world. And uh, I met with many of the activists, uh, particularly from Europe, but from uh, other countries as well, including India, and uh, it was, you know, it was a complete, um, you know, it, it, it was a wonderful, incredibly uplifting experience to see how much the proponents of justice around the world really see eye to eye on this, on climate, on economic justice, and on peace. And we recognize that we need to build a strong movement that bring together people, planet, and peace within our own countries but not stop there. We need to be working across borders to have a live uh, movement that help make us all stronger. And we've agreed to stay in touch and look for opportunities to build this uh, peace initiative internationally. So absolutely, see eye to eye with Corbyn on social policy and on um, you know the need to, to uh, stop global militarism from destroying us. Uh, about Secretary of State, by the way, there are all kinds of possibilities um, you know, you could look at the Green Shadow Cabinet, which uh, is a nonpartisan organization, um, which is not active at the moment, but it has all kinds of, you know, uh, wonderful, informed uh, leaders who occupy a whole variety of cabinet positions. And I would mention that you yourself, <laughs> you know, I believe occupied the Secretary of Peace, which is a secretary that needs to be created. Um, for Secretary of State, I think it is uh, Medea Benjamin and Anne Rice, uh, Colonel Anne Rice, um, who currently share that appointment. Um, you know, another important person is Ray McGovern, who 
was the advisor to uh, several, you know, the national security advisor who briefed, provided the morning briefing for several presidents. Uh, so there are many extremely well-informed and experienced advocates that I draw on for advice already and who would be a part of our administration. How to get to the win? Let me say two things. First of all, um, there are 43 million young people and not so young people who are trapped in debt, in student debt. My campaign is the only campaign that will be on the ballot um, that will abolish student debt. We did it for the bankers who plunged us into this economic crisis that persists in spite of what they say. Uh, and they did that by way of their waste, fraud, and abuse. Yet we bailed them out to the tune of $16 trillion and counting. So isn't it about time we bail out the victims of that waste, fraud, and abuse, the young people of this country whose leadership and whose civic engagement is essential for uh, blazing the trail to our future? It has always required a fresh generation to re-envision you know, what our future looks like. So we need to bail out the young people for their benefit and for ours. That can be done through another quantitative easing, which is relatively simple, does not cost us, essentially expands the money supply in a way that, that works as a stimulus to the economy, unlike the bailouts that they provided to Wall Street, which have only created a stimulus for more reckless gambling, waste, fraud, and abuse. So this is a stimulus that we badly need. But to get to the point of how does this get us from here to the White House, well, the point is, I have yet to find a young person in debt who doesn't become a missionary for our campaign the minute they learn that we will cancel their debt. So our word is, I'll put it this way, the strategy is this. Let young people know that they can come out and vote to cancel their debt. And this is a win-win because even if we don't win the White House, to have millions of young people coming out to cancel debt makes this an issue that cannot be stopped the Democrats or Republicans or whoever, uh, you know, wins this election, or if we win this election, this makes this a force to contend with now. But 43 million young people, that is a plurality of the vote. In a three-way race, that's enough to win the vote. Uh, 25 million Latinos who vote, in addition to 12 million who are set with deportation. Well, the 25 million who vote have learned that the Democrats are the party of deportation, of night raids, and of detention. Uh, of refugees who are fleeing a crisis in their home countries that we created. How? Through NAFTA, through uh, illegal uh, coups and, and CIA-sponsored, um, you know, regime changes, uh, and through the, uh, through the drug wars. So we have created incredible chaos, war, and poverty uh, south of the border as well as in the Middle East. This is where the refugee crisis is coming from. And if people want to um, fix the immigration problem, the answer is stop causing it, you know. Um, so at any rate, 25 million is a lot of young people. I'm sorry, it's a lot of Latinos. 43 million is a lot of um, uh, is a lot of young people in debt and who have nowhere else to go except to our campaign. If that word gets out, we have we have the potential to turn politics as usual on its head uh, in November of 2016. So that is one way how we get to the win. But let me say one more thing, and that is the win is not only winning office. The win is developing the potential to win office. To get from here to there, you've got to build. 
whether we can build in the course of this race, building on our last race, um, you know, that, uh, certainly the odds are against us, put it that way. I'm not holding my breath, but I'm not ruling it out. We are in the age of the black swan, and stranger things are happening, uh, like the disappearance of entire cities and ice sheets and species and all sorts of things that uh, no one would have imagined in their wildest uh, nightmares are happening. Um, there could be a major political transitioning happening here that people don't expect. The odds, however, are that we need to build, like Theresa built, like Podemos has built. Uh, and in order to build, you have to stand up and stand your ground and fight your way forward. And it's time to reject the lesser evil and stand up and fight for the greater good, like our lives depend on it, because they do. We have the power, we have the numbers, we have the solutions. What we need is the courage of our convictions, because the minute we stand up, uh, we have enough to take back our future and make it healthy, just, and sustainable.